80% of marine plastics are microplastics that are smaller than a grain of rice. The air that we breathe has microplastics in it. And food from all sources at this point probably has microplastic in it. Welcome to Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic, where we cover local perspectives and experiences of innovative community research and resilience from across Atlantic Canada. This podcast is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the Grenfell campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland in partnership with the University of Guelph. Today's episode will be a conclusion of our three-part mini-series on plastics in the ocean. So far, we've heard from community champions from across Atlantic Canada on how they are taking a stand against ocean pollution from things like ghost gear and single-use plastics. Now, we will continue this conversation as we discuss another form of plastic in the ocean. What does sea salt, fishing nets, clams, mac and cheese and the air that we breathe all have in common. If you haven't already guessed, let me tell you about a pollutant in the media over the past few years. That's right, microplastics. I'm Jackie Bauman, your host for today's episode exploring the nuance around microplastics. In case you've missed it, check out episode five, where Dr. Sandra Eager and I introduce the topic of plastics in the ocean. I'm really excited to host this episode as we wrap up our discussion on plastic pollution and piece together all that we've learned from our guests in this mini-series. For those of you that don't know, I'm a master's student studying environmental policy at the Grenfell campus of Memorial University. Meanwhile, I'm also the Plastics Program Coordinator for Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative, also known as AHOY. That being said, this topic really fires me up. Let me give you a quick overview of what I do with AHOY. A lot of it connects to projects led by our guests in this mini-series. Remember Jennifer and Ariel from Lunenburg? The movement in this town to get businesses and restaurants away from single-use plastics inspired a lot of work that Ahoy does. We are helping businesses to replace plastics with compostable or reusable products. Additionally, we conduct a lot of waste audits at beaches to find thousands of items like shotgun shells, tampon applicators, and lobster tags. With the help of volunteers, Ahoy has been able to collect data on the most problematic plastics in our region. When we learned that the Clear Lab is tracking the distribution of lobster tags in the ocean, Ahoy began documenting the numbers found on these tags and sending this data to the researchers at the Clear Lab. Lobster tags, just like all the plastic pieces we find on the beaches, are known to break down into smaller fragments. It gets to the point where most of the plastics are too small to even collect on the beach. That's why today's discussion is so important. Today, we chat with microplastic researcher Max Liboiron, the founder of the Clear Lab. We will also chat with Krista Beardy, a researcher and kayak guide in the Bay of Fundy. We'll hear about two different paths that brought our guests into microplastic research. Later in the episode, we hear from both Max and Krista about the impacts of microplastics on human health and where we're seeing microplastics in our food. We'll finish off with Ariel Smith, a familiar voice we heard on episode five, to connect microplastics with what we learned at the beginning of this mini-series and to close out this discussion on plastic pollution in the ocean. Let's welcome Max. Uh, My name is Dr. Max Liberon. I'm an associate professor of geography at Memorial University, and that is where my lab, CLEAR, Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, is housed. Uh, And in that lab, we do a lot of plastic pollution monitoring, often in collaboration or partnership with different community groups uh, or Indigenous nations. 
and we try to do our best to make that research align with local priorities and use tools so that if local groups want to do it without us or after us or in addition to us, they can they can do all of that. So open source tools, open data, lots of partnership, lots of transparency over methods, that sort of thing. Max works in a really interesting space. They worked on microplastics for over 15 years and is a leader to people trying to do community-based research, which is an ongoing theme and research practice that we've heard throughout this volume. Let's get to know them a bit more. So when I was a graduate student, like well over a decade ago, I was really interested in, in all of these environmental problems that people are facing around the world. And so I wanted to research these different moments in history when what seemed like impossible waste problems became possible to solve. So my main case study at that time was 1880s New York, the filthiest city in the world, which three years later had the most and best universal sanitation system in the world, right? What happened that where it went from like, you can never clean up New York City to like, this is the best. So when I was doing that work, someone asked me, oh, have you heard about ocean plastics? And I was like, yeah, we've just started hearing about it about. And they said, are you going to be covering that in your dissertation as one of these impossible problems to solve? And I said, no, because I don't think it can be solved. It's not solvable. And then I thought about that for a little while. And then I was like, well, I should totally change my project. Uh, And so that's part of what I do is like, okay, what are the roots of this problem? So in addition to monitoring, we can intervene in meaningful spaces. So not just, you know, bringing a reusable bag to the grocery store, but how do we influence policy and industry and these upstream areas of plastics, which is what all of these different moments in history have in common, right? Dealing with upstream roots as opposed to downstream symptoms. Plastic research in Newfoundland has come a long way in the past 15 years since Max began working on the rock. Not just the conventional natural science we tend to think about, but the relationship of the plastic problem from the social science perspective. My graduate work was mostly about looking at the social science of this new emerging science of marine plastics. How were scientists making sense of it? How were they inventing new metrics and ways of studying this this thing that is also most, most marine plastics are microplastics, which are smaller than a grain of rice, and there was no consensus on how to study them. So how are they making them apparent? How are they talking about this as a problem that was pretty invisible and hard to sort of nail down? So a lot of the social side of it. And then I came to Newfoundland and Labrador and I was ready to like look into how scientists were dealing with plastics. And when I got here, there weren't any systematically dealing with that. There were little studies here and there off the side of people's desks, you know, that were related to their main work, but there was no one who was like the plastics person. And so I became one of the main plastic monitoring people for the province. And now I work mostly with the Nunatsiavik government and one of the most robust large-scale, multi-environmental plastic monitoring programs in the Arctic uh, in partnership with Liz Pugge, who's the Northern Contaminants researcher there. Before we continue hearing about Max's research, they help us understand some of the nuances around discussing microplastics in scientific research. So when you're a scientist and you're looking at different microplastics, classifying what we call their morphologies or like their shapes, kind of, is a way for us to tell where the plastic might be coming from. So like a pellet is from pre-production. It comes straight from industry. And there's nowhere a pellet can come from except for industry because it's the raw material for manufacturers to make plastic things. And they spill out of container ships. The Great Lakes are totally rife with them. We don't see them so much in this province. Threads, we see a ton of in this province because one of the only places they come from is fishing gear. So you know how fishing gear is super woven ropes? Threads are like when that fragments and they turn into like fat little rope hairs. (laughs) Microfibers, 
are basically lint. They're the size of dust. So when you do your laundry, a lot of your clothes have a lot of plastic in them. And so when they wash out, we are finding microfibers all over the world from wastewater. And a lot of those are plastic. They can also be cotton. You kind of don't want to eat or ingest either type. Fragments are very common. They're just chunks of larger things that have cracked off. Microbeads, of course, you've probably heard about in the news. They're teeny, teeny, tiny beads that are used as exfoliants and like face products and mechanics wash and stuff like that. Those are supposed to be banned. But if we find those, we know they come from sewage. Film plastics are like from plastic bags. They're very thin, flexible, plastic baggy stuff. We know if we find that, that it's local or relatively local. Because when that hits the ocean, the ocean is so strong, it gets shredded into teeny tininess very fast. Right. So these, these are the sorts of names we use as scientists to talk about what we're seeing within the microplastics, which can tell us whether we think sewage is a major component of what we're seeing, whether it's local or come from away plastics, whether it's from industry. So those are some extra terms to add some nuance to some of our conversations. So in Newfoundland and Labrador, a lot of threads, a lot of fragments, not so many films, mostly because our ocean is so strong. Like the water here is incredibly strong. Not a lot, a lot of microbeads, even though we don't have a lot of sewage infrastructure here, we also don't have a lot of population here. Right. So it's sort of this is this is part of the dialect, right, of different of different plastic places are these morphologies. There's a lot more language surrounding this field than I thought. Max uses the term thread. Keep this one in mind as we'll hear Chris refer to it again later. So our lab does a lot of different things, because, of course, if you try to align them with different community priorities, they're all they're going to be different. Right. So when I the, the bulk of our work is in partnership with Nazi Avut, where we look in across environmental media with a focus on wild food uh, and like ring seal and arctic char, which are very important in the food webs. Uh, And we look at plastic ingestion there, but also shorelines and in the water and in drinking water, right? It's just the entire ecosystem uh, to try and figure out where plastics are coming from for, for intervention and tracking. On the island of Newfoundland, we've done a lot of studies with cod, again, because that's a very important, <laughs> you know, lifeblood of the of the island and the entire province. But also shorelines, we've looked at the urban watershed in St. John's, which is very different than anywhere else. Uh, and we've done this report called the Regional Report, where we looked at every single iota of data ever produced in the entire province on plastic pollution, including like in the 1970s, fishermen being like, Hey, that looks like plastic over there. That was a data point, as well as these like systematic studies. And we put them in conversation with each other to try and see the state of the knowledge here. Yeah, we try we try and, and touch on all the nodes uh, that are important and happening, even though we're just one lab. Working with communities to help monitor plastics has led to some very innovative and accessible technologies. Now monitoring can occur with or without the help of the lab, whether you're looking for plastics in animals, on the shoreline, or in water. As part of that, we've developed a few different open source technologies so that uh, communities can monitor plastics themselves. The main two we work with are surface water trawls. So shoreline is is pretty accessible. You can study a shoreline by walking up to it. Doesn't require a lot of grants. And there are published protocols out there, including our own, for how to do that. And then same with like fishing and hunting. People fish and hunt. They know how to get their animals. And then we provide a little bit of guidance of like how to look for plastics or how to send us the guts. But what's less accessible is surface water trawling. So we've invented two different technologies and put the plans for how to use them out. Uh, One is called Baby Legs, which is made with a pair of baby tights, which is how she got her name. 
and she skims the surface of the water and the sample collects inside the little baby tights like a cute cheap little net and the mouth is held open by a soda pop bottle costs about like 12 bucks to make very easy to use and then we've also made something called the lady trawl the low-tech aquatic debris instrument it looks a lot more like the scientific standard which is called the manta trawl the manta trawl is about $3,500 us to make and build an order while the lady trawl is about $500 450 bucks of that is the plankton net because you have to have really really small and exact holes in your net for for tiny tiny plastic sampling um, you can build Lady out of things you can you can do in your garage. It doesn't require power tools, although it's nice. A bunch of different NGOs in Nova Scotia and around the world actually using these devices because they're more affordable. You can fix them yourself. You can build them yourself without waiting for anyone. So that's the that's the plan behind those technologies. Based on this research from the Clear Lab, what do we know about plastic pollution in Newfoundland? So part of what's been really interesting, especially because I'm also part of a global network of other plastic pollution scientists, is I've come to realize very early and very clearly that the sort of dialects of plastic pollution in the province are completely different in different areas. St. John's plastic pollution looks completely different than the South Shore, looks completely different in different places on the South Shore, right? So there are a few things that plastic pollution in Newfoundland and Labrador have in common. We got a lot of fishing gear, there's, you know, an average amount in, in terms of microplastics versus macroplastics. But some beaches load a ton of plastics and some have none. Ice is a huge factor in, in dragging microplastics on shore and other places not so much. Different places in Labrador have completely different profiles. So that's been really interesting. And, it, and it's made me be really careful about trying to make broad statements about like plastics in the province. And what we found is that a lot of the methods that are being proposed for standardization don't work in this province because, first of all, we have no sand on our shorelines or very little, very rocky, and most protocols don't work on rocky shores or weather. Uh, our primary drivers and um, those are almost never accounted for or sampled. Like there's no protocol for sampling ice or snow, which in this province makes almost no sense because there can be snow on the ground 10 months of the year. Give, you know, given the day. So, so these are some things where it's not only that we have local dialects, we're starting to have to also have local methods that really work here that don't necessarily work in other places as well. And other places results aren't always comparable to here because the context and the landscape is so different. The differences of plastics found in different places help scientists understand what type of plastic is coming from where. This demonstrates the importance of context especially in a place like Newfoundland, which is so unique. Standardized methods for collecting data and researching plastics just don't really work here. That's why the Clear Lab emphasizes the importance of citizen science. There are, there are many, many ways where people who aren't accredited. Citizen science is usually where people who don't have science degrees mostly collect data for, for science labs uh, to expand the reach uh, and the amount of data we get. There are a few other manifestations of it, but that's the main one, and that's how we mostly use it. We also do partnering, right? So there, if there are community groups or NGOs or small municipal groups who also want to do a study, we can partner with them, and then we talk with them about exactly what we would need from them. Local knowledge is a huge part of it, right? Does weather affect your shorelines the most, or does seasons, right? Or something, you know, something like this. So that's part of citizen science. This method has been helpful for Max and their team to understand the effectiveness of local or regional strategies to prevent plastic pollution. We do a lot of citizen science in our lab to help us. The province is huge. I'm one person. 
my lab, even though we have 20 people, we're, we're doing a million projects, right? So, so a lot of citizen science helps us scale up to an answer these provincial-wide questions about interventions and the state of things. When there's been an intervention, we can use it to tell whether it's worked or not. So measuring the same thing in the same place after an intervention tells you whether it worked. So one of the things we're going to do soon is look for uh, film plastics on shorelines again to see what the provincial bag ban has done or not. It, maybe it's done a lot of good things, but has it also impacted marine plastics? To be determined, if you are a local group in Newfoundland and Labrador, including an individual, and you would like to work with us on that, find me. We'll get you set up. Uh, if you're in the province, whether you're a hunter or a fisher or someone who walks the shoreline, right? We've got gigs. We've got places for you to, to fit in this framework. To get in touch with Max about this project, check out the show notes. Now let's unpack this topic of microplastics a bit more as we welcome Krista Beardy to this discussion, who's an environmental educator and researcher currently working at the University of New Brunswick. My name is Krista Beardy, and I am a microplastic researcher at the University of New Brunswick in St. John. I'm also a grad student here, a master's candidate, and working slowly through uh, different contracts you know, on microplastics, as well as other benthic ecology work. One of those previous contracts was working as the Marine Debris Project Coordinator for the Huntsman Marine Science Centre. Does that ring any bells? You guessed it. Krista has also worked with Lillian and Matt, who we heard from in the last episode on Ghost Gear. Her work tackles plastic pollution by going straight to the source. Prior to working with the University of New Brunswick, I was working with the Huntsman Marine Science Centre, located in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. And basically what the mandate was, was to find ways to remove marine debris from the ocean, particularly with a focus on plastics, because uh, that seems to be the most insidious kind of pollution that we're facing nowadays. It's been classified as a contaminant of emerging concern for very major reasons. Uh, so that was that was what we we're trying to do. We we're trying to get rope, fishing gear, domestic waste, which is always a big problem from waterways and from land-based resources, trying to tackle ways that we could reduce our impact on our local waterways and, of course, the ocean. Additionally, Krista spent 12 years working as a kayak guide in Nova Scotia. Here she experienced on a daily basis the negative impacts that plastic pollution can have on marine ecosystems. In being a guide, I was tasked with introducing people from all over the world in large groups as a captive audience about everything that we love about Atlantic Canada. So it was everything from just enjoying being outdoors and uh, enjoying some exercise to the science and the ecology behind what it was we were seeing. So whether it was marine mammals, whether it was fish life, plant life, local history, I enjoyed every aspect of it. And the one problem that I found was that in every place we would go was just covered in garbage, particularly coves and shorelines, anywhere we went. And that, that was always a problem for me. So I kind of tailored some of my, um, my tours to talk about that. So we would go out and talk about everything we normally would, but then we would come back with immense amounts of garbage attached to our kayaks. And it kind of became a little bit of a game we'd play. Krista's experience working within marine environments encouraged her to learn more about the impacts of plastic in these environments using a bottom-up approach. To have a healthy ocean, we need, we need it to be healthy in a holistic sense. Nothing is ever healthy if one part of it is degrading. And one thing with ghost gear and marine debris and plastics in general is that they're impermeable to air and water. They're hydrophobic and they tend to smother out the healthy layers of mud and plant life that live 
below the ocean surface. And of course, that's important. Like I could go on for hours with benthic importance. People don't think of how important that mud is, but it truly is. Like we have young populations of fish that require a lot of this habitat. We have got bivalves, we have worms. And I know people don't think of the worms, but you gotta think of the worms because it's called bioturbidity. It's what keeps the benthic layers moving and keeps that mud healthy, keeps the oxygen flowing, keeps the nutrients dense in that layer so that we can have the baby fish populations, the lobster populations, the clams, and everything that comes with that. Because everything else in the ocean does rely on that. So it is just what the ocean needs to be healthy, is down there. And if we smother that out with layers of debris, and ghost gear and plastics, then you get areas of anoxic sediment, which is just not fit for life at all. Krista's view of an ecosystem is that every piece within it is critical. With this perspective, let's talk about Krista's work and the importance of mud. You heard me, mud. So a lot of people are looking at the amount of microplastics in water samples and the amount of plastics in um, digestive systems of fish and seabirds. But I'm looking at what is getting caught up in the benthic layers, so the sediment on the ocean floor. And what better place to do that than here in the Bay of Fundy, where we have mudflats for miles. And so I'm looking at bivalves, uh, so clams and blue mussels, things that we do consume. I'm also helping with a project here with uh, lobsters as well. And we're looking at how it's affecting the organism first before we're going up that chain of consumption. Benthic environments refer to the bottom layers of any aquatic ecosystem. These environments are important for breaking down organic materials and for the early life cycle stages of many aquatic ecosystems. Benthic ecosystems are quite literally the foundation of a healthy ocean. When microplastics or other contaminants get into the benthic ecosystem, they are consumed by species at the bottom of the food chain. As those small species are consumed by larger fish, the concentration of the contaminant continuously increases as it moves up the food chain. This process Krista is referring to is called bioaccumulation. Sediment here does have microplastics in it, as do the bivalves because they're feeding through the sediment. And what the problem is, is that plastic is what's called hydrophobic. So that's what makes it waterproof. Water doesn't soak in, water doesn't seep into it, which is why we use polymers all the time to keep things waterproof. Unfortunately, in the background of the ocean, in terms of contamination, there are other hydrophobic pollutants as well. And my favorite one is favorite one to talk about is DDT. So that's one that everyone has heard of, and we know the damage it caused back in the day when it was in full use. We lost a lot of healthy habitat and a lot of particularly bird life, but was affected. And unfortunately, because it is a persistent pollutant, just like plastic, it means it just doesn't break down when it's in the environment. So it's still out there, just like plastic. Once it's in the environment, it's going to be out there for a very, very long period of time. We'll just say indefinitely. We're not quite sure how long it will take for it to break down. But they like to attract each other. So that is the biggest problem here when we're looking at human health is the microplastics in the water they will bind to other hydrophobic contaminants, which DDT is an example of, there are many more. So whenever you're consuming a microplastic, the plastic itself could be completely biologically inert and not bother you at all, but it could be what is attached to that plastic that might cause the concern. These hydrophobic microplastics pick up hitchhiker contaminants that bind with plastics to travel through the environment. 
An example of this would be pesticide runoff, which causes excess nitrogen and phosphorus to enter our waterways. These contaminants bind with the microplastics and end up in our food and drinking water. This is why the bioaccumulation of plastics can be so dangerous. I did some uh, microplastic analysis of our local clams directly from those harbors to show the community research that was done in like South America or Australia or someplace in the States. It doesn't hit home quite so much as what you see in your own backyard. So the work I was doing, it, it was more of digesting a clam in a, um, it was a base, basically digesting it until it was liquid and then filtering it to see what's left over. And so the entire clam or muscle in some cases would basically liquefy and whatever was left behind was either some really tough cellulose plant material or plastics. A lot of those plastics I took a photo of under the microscope and enhanced it. And the first thing you'd notice is that it looks just like the rope, just on a miniature scale, the rope that is used in those industries. So between colors and patterns sometimes, it was evident right away. It was very clear. Remember when Max explained the types of microplastics and they refer to the term thread? This is what Krista saw under the microscope. So I was able to use a PowerPoint presentation to be like, this is what I found in the Bay of Fundy. This is where you fish. This is the ecology and the ecological impacts that are happening in a place where you want to fish for the next generation. And the generation after that, if this trend continues, that might not be possible. The fishing culture out here, it's a very strong fishing culture. And that's fantastic, but we have to protect those fisheries. Otherwise, we're not going to have any more fisheries to speak of. More research needs to be done before any conclusions are made about the implications of microplastics in our food. But what we do know is that it's not just seafood we should be worrying about. Now we know that microplastics are a problem, but how are all these different types getting into our ocean? Based on our previous two episodes, you could probably make a few guesses. I use an example all the time as people put stuff in the garbage, right? And that garbage is, say, 100 feet from the, uh, the ocean. And then you see the seagulls come along to check out that garbage. And they're just thrashing it everywhere until like, everything is just a mess. So that plastic ends up in the water hole, so to speak. So a straw is a good example. We all know that example of the sea turtle with the straw that's kind of jammed up its nose. And it's in great distress. And it was a horrible video to watch. But that, it is a good example. That straw is going to do that kind of physical damage as a straw. And that damage is going to happen over and over again because that turtle is going to die. That straw is going to come out and that straw is going to get taken on by something else. As time goes on, that straw is going to get brittle. It's going to break into pieces. And then you're going to have five or six turtles consuming smaller pieces, but still, they're still consuming something they shouldn't. And the problem with that is that as it gets smaller, it feeds more and more of our marine life because more things can consume it at that size. So when it consumes plastic, often the plastic cannot pass through the gut and it's indigestible. So if it doesn't pass through the gut, then it sits in the gut, taking up space. And then with more consumption, you have less and less space for actual food. So you end up with animals that feel full and can't fit any proper nutrition into them or pass it through. So it's, it's either going to be death from malnutrition or death from just obstruction, complete stomach intestinal obstruction by plastic. That's a problem, of course, that's completely not talking about the other contaminants that could be in that plastic. But now consider that the plastic in that turtle or seabird causes death. 
that animal will then decay and all that plastic in the stomach is released once more. Just because something ate it doesn't mean it's out of circulation. And the same thing is true with any kind of marine debris, for instance. Um, that is kind of a blanket term for anything that really is in the ocean that shouldn't be. And we can even you know, put things like wood into that category because most of the wood that you find that doesn't belong in the ocean, say like a felled tree or, or something like that, it's chemical treated, it's painted sometimes, and paint, what is that if it's not just a polymer that's going to flake off? That paint and coating is going to be microplastics very quickly. Now we understand how microplastics enter our ocean, but how do we prevent this? And how can we communicate this information to the public? One of our priorities through Coastal Connections is to share innovative solutions that promote coastal resilience. Krista shares a great example of how growing information on microplastics is motivating communities near her to reduce their reliance on plastic material. When I was working at the Huntsman Marine Science Center, uh, we started up a program called the Debris Free Friendly Program. And that is a local recognition program for businesses, restaurants, and uh, tourism industry businesses to reduce the amount of plastics that they use, reduce the amount of plastics that end up both in their kitchen and in their takeout, as well as on board like whale watching cruises and such. So that was one initiative that started. And programs like that, they do need support and to support local vendors who take part in that. So a lot of a lot of places ended up making the switch from styrofoam and plastic utensils, and they started making that switch over to recyclable paper, non-plastic alternatives, um, bamboo, whatever it was. But a lot of people took part in that, and it was great to see. So everywhere you go, you have to either pay a certain fee for a paper bag or bring your own, and that's pretty new, and that was started up just recently. We also have the rope recycling program here. It's more of a rope recapture program at this moment because we still need the research and support to turn it more into a recycling program. But at least what we're doing is we're keeping industrial ropes out of the water, and that is the first step. So Nova Scotia already has a larger program. We have a pilot program here. It's all heading in the right direction. We're educating the fishing and aquaculture industry as to the importance of recapturing your gear, making sure it makes it back to shore, and then finding a way to dispose on land instead of having it in a situation where it could easily make it back into the water. Given the uncertainties and ongoing questions from folks about the impacts of microplastics on human health, we asked both Max and Krista to help us understand the state of this research field. Yeah, there's a lot of focus uh, that's going into the the toxicology of plastics, basically, because the human health question is, of course, a pressing question, right? But there are a lot of problems because it's not, first of all, a single question. There are many, many types of plastics which have hundreds, if not thousands of different associated chemicals, all at different doses. There are many, many different endpoints, meaning like your liver and your spleen and your gut and your brain and a man's brain and a woman's brain and a non-binary brain. Like, so there's just like this proliferation of different ways and different things to study within that problem that there isn't an emerging consensus yet. So there are some studies that are like, yep, totally. When lugworms eat plastics and some of the toxic chemicals from plastics move into their systems, they have hepatic stress, meaning like their kidneys are not so happy. I think it's kidneys. I don't know if worms actually have kidneys, but it's called hepatic stress. While other studies are like, actually, no, just breathing the air is a much more significant passage for some types of chemicals compared to like 
plastics, you know, or, you know, your cleaning supplies, your toxic cleaning supplies that smell like chemicals, those would be more significant, right? So there's just, there's not a lot of agreement right now. And I don't think there ever will be agreement because it's actually a really diverse set of things. Like calling things plastics as one group is actually very misleading um, because they have different toxicities, different problems, different circulations, different amounts. They're super different. Given the complexity of this topic, a better question might be to ask, what do we know? For people who like to eat seafood, and I include myself in that list, there's nothing really to worry about at this point because the air that we breathe has microplastics in it. And food from all sources at this point probably has microplastic in it. While Max and Krista share a similar view on this, Krista provides us with a disturbing visual. A good example is... When I started doing sediment analysis, I was using store-bought pickling salt, which changes the density of the sediment sample and kind of floats the plastics away from the sediment so I could siphon it off and count the plastics that way. It's kind of a, a neat trick. And it's something that I use, you know, in educational purposes mostly. And to do that, I make a saturated solution and I filter it through a 0.22 micron membrane. That's really small. And the amount of plastic that is in the salt that is made for consumption, it was it was really interesting, <laughs> to say the least. So I had a class last year, and we did some other household items just for fun, things like sugar, things like table salt, even putting a tea bag using filtered water that had already been checked out and filtered still resulted in microplastics in your diet. There you have it. So at this point, microplastics are pretty unavoidable. And the smaller plastics get, the more the fancy scientific word is bioavailable. It just means like more things can eat them. So like worms and whales can eat very small things while only whales can eat very large things. So the smaller they get, the more bioavailable they are. But also fish, for instance, will just poop that out. Fish are big old tubes. Right. So so there's an urgency about this. But there's also I really want to emphasize that. You should still eat your fish and still eat your birds, um, because even though we're finding plastics in them, they, they, they move through them, right? Plastics move through them. Sometimes they might, it's called translocate. The plastics might be so small that they move into other parts of the animal. But honestly, you're as likely to get that much plastic just on your mac and cheese, sitting, getting dust on it in your house, because plastic is a main component of house dust now, compared to whatever you get from fish. So in a province where wild food is super important, uh, keep eating that wild food. Now, as we begin to weave together each of the episodes from this mini-series, let's revisit Ariel Smith from Mahone Bay, Nova Scotia. As a refresher, Ariel is the Coastal and Marine Team Lead for Coastal Action. In episode five, she helped introduce the mini-series on plastic pollution. And now, she helps demonstrate how all plastic pollution is interconnected. So let's hear how her team's focus started with microplastics. So little uh, projects happening in Atlantic Canada focused on just understanding how many plastics, microplastics are out there, what types of microplastics are out there. And then that kind of morphed into understanding actually all types of plastic pollution are really interconnected. So to better understand how we could prevent microplastics, we need to better understand the types of single-use plastics or fishing debris that is being inputted into the coastal and marine environment. So once we started realizing we could better understand microplastics and how they impact our local environment, 
we realized we could partner with other Atlantic Canadian groups. They also have just a very intimate knowledge with the local environment. They've been working on environmental issues in their areas. So we thought this is a really cool way of collaborating with people and allowing them to have a bit more of a connection to the methods and the sampling that they're doing. Rather than having maybe a larger federal body or provincial body go out there and do the research as academics and then leave the area, we have people that know the area super well and are doing the sampling themselves and then staying there to communicate the data. You know, these small communities are very aware of what's happening and it's cool to see their engagement just in and of itself just their overall interest, you know, as we're out there doing sampling. Coastal Action went beyond just informing the local community of what kind of research was happening. With a new microplastic project that uh, we were successful in getting funding for this past year, part of that is actually just going and training folks in PEI and New Brunswick. So instead of Coastal Action doing the bulk of the sampling, we went out to meet with those community partners and train them on methods. So that's the thing I did in the fall of last year. And then they'll be out uh, this summer doing microplastic sampling in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Trackety Bay and Bedeck Bay. Coastal Action completed a three-year plastic sampling project in the Bay of Fundy. They're working to make the results public so that anyone can access the information and understand just how much plastic is in the local environment. In addition, Ariel is working on a proposal to establish a network that can bring together multiple data sets for microplastics. Some of the emerging themes that are repeatedly heard from our guests include the value of local knowledge and the strong impact collaborative initiatives can have. I think there are two scales of impact for our work. The first is just at individual to lab level. A really important part of how we know things in our lab is by hiring local people who have local knowledge. Uh, High schoolers, we've hired like seven-year-olds. We've hired, you know, a lot of our main researchers are undergraduate or graduate students in the university who are from the province. And watching come to understand themselves as full researchers not like the person to be consulted, but coming to really go into a decision-making role, understanding that local knowledge is the thing that makes the knowledge valid, that has been very cool. We do a lot of community meetings and watching everyone show up to see these people talk has been very, very cool. Community part isn't icing, like it's the thing. It's the thing that makes the research true and work. The second scale has been governance. Because our monitoring program does take local things and local knowledge and local priorities into account so well, we're being asked to sit on these like circumpolar Arctic council things. And, you know, we're getting asked to work with the United Nations environmental program and this sort of stuff. And they are ready to hear what we say about You know, it's different in the north than it is in the south. It's different in this province than it is other places. Local priorities for plastics are fundamentally different than scientific community priorities about plastics. And they're starting to hear that uh, and make shifts in those directions, which impacts governance, which impacts funding, which, you know. So that is a slower moving train, uh, but one we're seeing movement on. So that's exciting, too. Now, let's hear some closing thoughts from Krista. To stop the flow of plastic into the marine environment, we have to stop using plastic for unnecessary purposes. 80% of what ends up in the ocean is land-based. Uh, whether it's coming down the St. John River from up towards Fredericton, you know, whenever the, um, the river swells, it just rinses everything out to the ocean. you got the Great Lakes, which flow into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and that takes 
all of the wastewater and all of the garbage that ends up in the Great Lakes straight out to the ocean. If we can stem that flow somewhere, then that's going to be the only way we can really make a difference. And to stem that flow, we have to stop using it. So if we don't need it, don't have it. And if you do have it and you do need it, you have to find a way to, to capture it properly. And if we can't do that, then it's, it's just going to be a snowball kind of problem. This is going to sound funny, but be the change that you want to see. You know, I know that's kind of the, the cliche, but at the same time, actions do speak louder than words. Um, cleaning up something that isn't yours is always something that people take notice of. Reusable things in a situation where often people will use disposables is a good one. And these are all really small scale drop in the bucket things, but we got to start somewhere. See, how, see what you can do to find alternatives in your own life. And talk about that. Because when you talk about that to other people, other people catch on really quickly. With each of our episodes, we continue to learn the value in shifting perceptions and behaviors in local communities. But what's the next step to continue to scale up our impact? Max's final thoughts push us to contemplate our personal plastic footprint and relates this to community-based actions that tip the scale even further. As far as like reducing individual use, there's nothing bad that happens from that, but it doesn't always scale to, to what I see, right? Um, it's very important for ethics. I think it's crucial for ethics. You know, one of the main types of plastics in St. John's is tire dust. Just like when, you're, when your tires hit the road, they abrade in tiny little ways and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, not, you know, basically the same things you do for climate change would be the same things you do for plastic pollution. First of all, they share a feedstock. Vehicles, you know, are a source of greenhouse gases, also tiny plastic pollution, right? But again, that, that's not going to scale up the same way as pressuring government. There's, there's supposed to be a plastic treaty in the work right now after COP26 that, that we're hoping to gain traction and, and citizen uh, input on that will be really important. The bag ban that happened in this province was NGO and citizen pressure, largely, and then and then small into large government. So, so those are the types of those are the types of things uh, to move on. Ghost gear and single-use plastics that end up in our waterways eventually break down into microplastics, and we know microplastics are in our food, air, and drinking water, but we don't yet know how much of an impact this will have on our health down the road. The goal of this mini series was to understand the scope of the plastics problem and share local solutions throughout Atlantic Canada. Remember that a way you can get involved in driving local change is to be a citizen scientist. In fact, the lobster tag data collected by Ahoy that we send to the Clear Lab is a contribution to one of their citizen science projects. We can all make an impact as we go about our daily lives. We can choose alternatives to plastic products, Focus on what you have. Buy only what you need. Individual action does matter. This can push businesses to become more accountable for their waste. We've also learned how communities can come together to make great progress on reducing and eliminating plastics. For maximum scalable impact, work within existing institutions to change outdated practices and advocate for better Speak up to your local minister or town council. With the holiday season upon us, focus on enjoying time with your family and community. The most eco-friendly product or holiday gift is one that you don't buy. If you and your family are still hooked on purchasing pre-made gifts, consider supporting your local businesses. 
Avoid plastic packaging as much as possible and try reusable gift wrapping, such as fabric bags that have a multitude of uses well beyond the holiday season. In the new year, we look forward to bringing you stories from a local entrepreneur whose expertise and international experiences with seaweed has carved out an amazing life with community and positive local impacts at the center. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, visit us on the Coastal Roots website. That's www.coastalroots.org.